0: Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where I take the famous and the fascinating for a bite to eat. And sometimes, given the current climate, that means we stay in for lunch. I send a top class takeaway to my guest homes while we chat over video link. This time, I get to compare dishes and opinions with a comedian and author who's a darling of the panel show, has hosted the series Comedians Giving Lectures, and has had many a successful stand up tour. Her latest book, Sex Power Money, prompted us to explore sexual representation, diversity, and the very notion of being vanilla it is of course the wonderful sarah pascoe
1: so jeremy paxman and i once spent three minutes together hello how are you hello how are you he said to me and he's an interviewer he said what do you do three minutes and he got up and went you're obsessed with sex goodbye
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's lovely to see you again we met once before
1: yeah in scotland wasn't it it was up north at that book festival and it was a really
0: Kind of politically febrile time because it was just before the Brexit referendum. There was
1: a time before Brexit. <laughs> I forgot about
0: <laughs> about a week before the Brexit referendum, and oh. it was all a bit intense. And you, I mean, if we look at the time frame, that was 20, summer 2016. Mm. My memory of you is that you were quite intense at that point.
1: Maybe, but I, do you know what I think? What happened is that we, um, we got left alone to eat, so everyone had kind of eaten before us, so we had quite a big dining table, <laughs> and so I think it probably was quite intense because you were just left with this woman you'd never met before. Um, it was really interesting. What I remember is you talking about how vegan cooking was really interesting in terms of flavours and doing things, you said that you'd written a lot about cooking without meat, and then I had just written a book which was a lot about evolution of the female body, so probably if I was talking about that, then it would have been a bit full on.
0: Yeah, You, you have a lot of controversial views sarah oh uh, do you and think so i think i think you do and the most oh. controversial as far as i'm concerned is that mash is a better use for potatoes than chips
1: wow okay is that yeah. controversial i think it depends just... which circles you <laughs> socialize in um <laughs> for me i think it's because i think that mash is the ultimate comfort food okay. and i just and and chips are a little bit common they're everywhere so i think <laughs> ma- mash takes a bit more time yeah so i throw in, so in my head it's it's right at the top of the potato tree unless okay. it's particularly well done roast potatoes
0: ah so there, there can be a hierarchy and the issue yeah. um vegan wise um yeah. so you know it's a non-vegan yeah. Uh, I just fire in the dairy. There's lots of butter and a bit of cr- milk and yeah, cream if there's some in the fridge and all that. What yeah. what's the go to to make mash happen? If well, you're...
1: actually, the thing now is that, that there's um there's a vegan butter which is incredible. That's made from a kind of coconut base, and then it, it's sold in solid blocks as well. It's called vegan block. I promise you, it's as creamy as anything, and um, I because I like the I like the creaminess of things as well. It's one thing as a vegan you're always seeking things out. I think I think I think Mash oh that's my doorbell, I've beaten you. Unless there's something All else right. coming. Going okay. I'll be back in two seconds, yeah. Hello again.
0: Ah. So I have ordered for you from by Chloe.
1: Yes. Do you know by Chloe? I do, because I'm vegan. When they were first coming to Covent Garden, there was excitement in the community. And so I, I believe I went and queued up in the very first week. And then now, of course, they've, they've got other branches. So I hope that's yes. not,
0: a, not a disappointment. So feel free it's to get not, in. It's not, because
1: I haven't had four of the things on this menu I've never tried from there. So, oh, it's excellent. very exciting. So, I'm going to say
0: what, what you've got, and um, I can, mm. while, I, while I fill one, my bike arrives. So, you've got the hot chicky sandwich with super crispy temper chick. I don't know what temper is. You'll have to explain that to me. It's
1: a bit like tofu, but it's a different way of preparing it.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And that's with hot sauce and purple slaw. Um, I've got you a spicy Thai salad with almonds, quinoa, edamame, crispy wontons, and some more uh, apricot sriracha glazed temper. Uh, this is too much food. It's just going to go in your yes, fridge, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got your sticky toffee pudding with coconut oh whipped gosh. cream and a blood orange bitters and cardamom fizzy thing.
1: Well, thank you so much. This is very exciting. I'm now isn't the it? I, yeah.
0: It, it's almost. I, you know, uh, I, I don't know by the time this drops, where we'll be, uh, lockdown yeah. wise. But what I have discovered is it. Um, it's almost like Christmas, isn't it? Little little presents has, yeah. has just arrived. Have you at any point, again, very personal question? Have you ever done therapy?
1: Yeah, sorry, it's my dog crying. Shh, your dog can't understand cry. why I'm talking. Shh, <laughs> shh. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I did. Ther- I've had two therapists, both in the last uh, five years. So I started with one therapist. And then I moved, so I started a new therapist. The thing with a therapist is not they're not supposed to be more intelligent than you. Everything that comes up in therapy, you sort out for yourself. You work it out. You hear yourself. You find yourself repeating something from three years ago and realize you've got a cycle and you are doing this in exactly the same way. It's all your own revelations. Essentially, they are just listening. So yeah, I have I have been to therapy. Did you enjoy again, talking
0: about yourself in that way?
1: I thought I was gonna get into like childhood. Neglect kind of stuff I thought I was going to get into it, and it really wasn't it was a lot of coping mechanisms, and the reason I went to it was because, as my job was becoming more successful, I was becoming less and less happy and i I'd, I'd always always wanted a life this this life that I had, and so when I wasn't enjoying it, I really realized I need to do the work because you can't be this lucky and still be miserable. but I know people oh, no. who who do it's have amazing lives isn't it it is out of everyone there's so much misery in the world that's unavoidable. Why have all this and still be sad?
0: I'm, I'm always suspicious of the word happy. Yeah. Content is, I yes, think, what happy, we aim ha- at.
1: Well, that's it. One of the things that comes out is that happiness isn't a solid state, but some of us think that we are. We're failing or yeah. that other people are happy. Um, what I definitely am is what I realised was um, you put a lot of the pressure on yourself and having a stranger tell you, well, you could just not do that. As in you could, so if you say, I'm doing the Edinburgh Festival, and I'm not sleeping, and, I've got, um, and I'm not eating, and um, I'm just drinking Red Bull and taking Nurofen and drinking too much at night, and then they go, well, don't do Edinburgh. And then you're like, well, I have to, this is my job, da, 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 da. I have to do this, if I don't do this, I can't be on Mock the Week. And they'll go, well, why do you need those things? And so there's a lot of like justifying like what is important to you and why. Because if you want to have a nice life, sometimes that means doing less or doing things, not needing everyone to like you. Knowing that not everyone's going to like your stuff.
0: It has to be said that being a comedian is not a, a route to having everybody like you, is it? No, I mean...
1: but, but but quite often that is what's driven them to begin with. The, the thing has been, please be my friend, everyone. Like please think I'm great, and then but all of us, you focus on the detractors and. Well, you you allow it to hurt you very much, where actually you have to let go and go, it's completely fine that that person thinks I'm rubbish and I don't have to live my life differently. My whole therapy was about it, and I was so glad I had a therapist. I thought, finally, because when I was 14... I auditioned for Barrymore's My Kind of People, which I know, again, it's bit of an old reference. And um, I'd never sung my song. (laughs) Look it up, kids. I'd never done it with a pianist. I'd always sung my song with a tape with the man singing. And then, so with a pianist, I didn't know when to come in. So I just started crying in a shopping centre. And then this beautiful thing happened because the people who were watching it started singing to help me with the words. And then I remembered where I was and I sang, but I sang and I was crying at the same time. And so I think I have this thing of like, real like sensitivity with singing, like, Oh, I did um, a Christmas reality TV singing competition where Jerry Halliwell told me I couldn't sing. It was a really stupid thing because actually (laughs) I should be at a position now where those things are passed. I did this competition thinking it's money. It's Christmas. It will be fun. Like I'm a comedian now. This is my job. I'm not a singer. And the same thing happened. My throat closed up. I got too nervous. I did a terrible job. And then I went home on the train crying and then I thought therapy. Brilliant. I've got therapy now. And she just thought it was so pathetic that I cared. (laughs) She she was like, she she was like, what are you going to do next? Gone naked attraction. she what, what, was just except, except that you, you said yeah. that
0: you love those those TV appearances. You know, you love yeah. panel shows. You love being yes. on QI. Well, it's,
1: yeah, that's it. It's exciting. It's fun. Like you get to live this life that if you were watching at home. When I finished university, my best friend Carrie and I went to see recordings of QI because it was free and because we loved Stephen Fry so much. And so I do love the, all of the lucky aspect of my life.
0: Is it unreasonable to point out that of all the singers in The Spice Girls...
1: I know, right? but that's why it hurts more.
0: <laughs> Where did the, the idea of performance first come into your head? Was that when you got to university?
1: No, no. At university, I was trying to make political theatre. I was doing an English degree, so I was reading people like Brecht. So definitely, definitely not comedy. I thought the world was so serious. There were so many serious things going on. And then, so so it's well after university. It was when I was um, probably 26. I was um, still trying to be an actor, and I was in a news review, it's called. So it's in Maid of Vale. It's a, a kind of satirical show that you change the words to songs and things to make them about the news. And someone else in the cast was a stand-up comedian. It was the first time I ever went to see a gig. It was in Wimbledon and it was open mic behind a pub and there were these guys with Macs holding pads, reading out their new material. And I'd always thought stand-up was improvised. I thought people like Billy Connolly were making it up. I mean, obviously he's a genius and it's scripted, but... I thought it all came out of his brain. I thought Harry Hill came on, said hello, and then said the first thing that came into his head.
0: (laughs) At what point did you start mining the idea of femaleness, of gender, of sex?
1: I I had never, ever been told I was a woman all the time. Like That hadn't happened, not at school. Feminism as a part of um, literature, but it wasn't a conversation about being a woman. And then stand-up, every gig I got to, someone told me... So I'd walk in the room they'd go, yeah, um, we've, we needed to book a woman. Thank you for coming in on short notice. Or um, you'd have charity gigs where they'd go, oh, it's so nice to have a woman on. It's so hard to find a woman. So that made me think about it a lot more. And then that's where I think some of the writing came from.
0: Was that from the bookers or was that also from the other comedians?
1: It was just kind of everyone. And actually, I didn't find the men in comedy to be particularly sexist. I didn't notice I was in a room of all men until somebody else pointed it out.
0: But then that would become quite central to your material, wouldn't it? Yeah. I say quite central, can I just go central?
1: I think I started stand-up at a time where the audience was becoming much more woman-heavy and there were audience members who wanted to hear about a woman's perspective. And so, again, I think I was shaped by that because sometimes me talking about women's stuff was going a lot better than me pretending that I I wasn't one. (laughs) Yeah. Which, which
0: really wouldn't have really wouldn't have flown. Yeah,
1: um, but no, but you do. Like at the beginning, I remember like wearing anoraks and really boring trousers and thinking, if I if I talk in quite a low voice, they might not even notice. Like in between the others, you can just you can try and hide it a little bit.
0: By the way, uh, just cutting across, the kale Caesar um, mm-hmm. is a is a fine thing, mostly because yeah. it's not got that much kale in it. Is my
1: they've softened my it. They've done that lovely thing where they've just softened it with the dressing. Mm-hmm. I think that dressing's delicious. That's what I, I really do. About I do,
0: I, I agree. I mean I'm not sure how they're doing it. It's but it's it's good well, that's and it's it. open. I looked
1: up the recipe and I thought I'm gonna to have to actually find out the amounts that they're doing in it in, but um it is it's very nice that one. Have you tried a crouton yet? They've got very sweet croutons in there.
0: They have they have maple croutons. Yeah. I have tried a crouton. You've got the spicy mm. Thai one. So if you're Yeah, uh, depending I'm gonna try on where
1: the spicy Thai.
0: Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth, and with my friend, the world famous lexicographer Susie Dent, every week we do a podcast all about words and language and their origin. We're all over the place this week, all over Great Britain, all over London, all over the world. We're talking about the origins of place names. There's somewhere in Bromley called Pratt's Bottom. Hard to believe, but it's true.
1: Can I tell you about Charing Cross? Charing goes back to an old English word meaning a turn or a bend, either referring to a bend in the River Thames at this point or the bend in the old Roman road that existed. But the cross refers to the Eleanor Cross erected here and in several other places, actually, by Edward I to commemorate his first wife, which was Eleanor of Castile, and her funeral procession went from cross to to Cross. So it's got a lovely story of love.
0: Am I right in thinking that people think that the centre of London is Charing Cross? So when you see a sign when you're approaching London. It says seven miles to central London. It is seven miles to Charing Cross.
1: Absolutely right. All distances calculated from there. So if you'd like to hear more about the etymology of London, tune in to the Best Entertainment Podcast, Something Rhymes With Purple, which is available on all the podcast providers that you know and
0: love. We're not just saying it's the Best Entertainment Podcast. We won an award. Incredible. <laughs> Brat's bottom. Hard to believe. The point we're at now is you've sort of got two things going on at once. At the point when we're talking, you're the paperback of Sex, Power, Money. I'm hoping I've got those words in the right order. Yes, you
1: absolutely have. Thank you.
0: Can you explain what Sex, Power, Money is about? Yeah. Because you'll do a better job of it than me.
1: When I was researching my first book about, you know, the female experience, having a female body, how the female body evolved... I thought I was going to have a chapter on pornography, which would be, porn is really bad, it um, objectifies the female body, um, it makes men more sexist, da-da-da-da, the end. That's what I thought I was going to write. And when I started researching it, I realised that I didn't know anything. I had never watched pornography.
0: Had like you really never seen a single moment of it? I mean, well, I, I don't want I, to stereotype Romford no, in no. any way, mm. but <laughs> this was a I, sheltered upbringing in, in
1: Essex. But, but I think I was. I think I had... Actually, I think I had a very outdoorsy, running around, playing outside, going to discos. I don't think I, I think I did have a kind of almost an Enid Blyton does Romford kind of upbringing. So I write in the book. I saw, I'd seen it twice. Once when I was nineteen, I was working in a hotel in Nottingham. I was a backing singer for Robbie Williams's dad. That's the exciting thing. And somebody uh, put uh, it, one of those
0: jobs. You do, yeah, no? one of those okay. jobs.
1: And somebody put it on in the background of a party. So I was sitting down with my back and I heard these noises and I turned around. And that was my first ever view of hardcore pornography, which I found really shocking. Because I'd never seen it before and I wasn't expecting to see it. And now I know, like, it was just just hardcore. It was just a close-up on genital penetration. But at the time, I found it really shocking. And also, that was the 10th of September, 2001. So the next day... (laughs)
0: Two planes
1: planes flew into these towers and the two things became melded in my mind as this really like phallic obliteration. And somehow the two things were connected, like that is evil and then this is evil and this other bigger sense of the world. Then my experience of it was always that I knew that boyfriends watched it and I knew that they watched it or they turned it off when you came in or at university. My flatmates would watch it together in a different room. And so my whole experience of pornography was from feminism from what how feminists wrote about it and anti-porn feminists so the minute i began researching i realized i was really really wrong like so certain things that i held to be true like oh there's a certain kind of body type in pornography which isn't true you think that if you've not seen any but then you realize every single kind of body and every single kind of person and
0: i think i have to throw in here just Mm. throw this into the game i mean you, you may know most mm. listeners do that. I grew yeah. up with a mother who was a sex advice columnist. My okay. mother was Claire Rayner, an agony mm. aunt, problem advice mm. columnist. If you're under the age of uh, 35, I you know probably who won't she. Remember is. No, it. I
1: know who she is. Yeah. And so,
0: sex—the multitudinous nature of sex, the variety of it—was sort of part of the underscoring of my childhood.
1: Because my mum was really open about sex, not in a pro- like a professional public way, but. So did you ever find that it made you more shy about it? Or do you think it made you feel quite empowered? And
0: So although I did feel comfortable with the ideas, I wasn't comfortable with myself. I mean, I'm, I'm still yeah. a big man, but I was a very mm-hmm. overweight teenager. And body image is hell. So it, there was a dichotomy going on, which is that I understood it all in detail. I knew that if I wanted to be into anything particular, which obviously didn't ha- you know harm anyone. <laughs> so it was all very open, but personally not.
1: I would absolutely understand your position because my mum was really open and really wanted me not to grow up with any shyness or embarrassment. My mum wanted me to understand pleasure and pleasure the benefits of it and not feel ashamed, which meant that actually everything to do with sex was connected to my mum. So... (laughs) <laughs> so, the, so, so the beginning of my period of like even liking boys, because I've got my mum's thoughts in my head, my mum had went through a stage after her divorce where she was dating and she had this phrase which was the ultimate orgasm about things that she liked. And so I remember being about 12 or 13 having to ask her, so what's an orgasm? And then being told and that ruining it for a very long time because <laughs> it's something that my mum does. It's like it's my mum's thing. And my mum had a big thing about, you know, um, yeah, asking for, uh, for pleasure from your partner, knowing what you like, which meant that I never could because that's you don't want to be in your head going, well, mum would be proud. Proud? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't think I've ever thought yeah. about it in those terms. Well, I was terrible getting laid. I mean, you know, university, yeah. when you should be knocking anything off the moves, I, I, I failed dismally at that. I've never been able to correlate those things apart from body image. But
1: maybe you respected people too much because there's something about... Some people who are serial shaggers were actually... It's a kind of psychopathy where they don't really see the the person quite often.
0: But in the 80s, there was a bunch of chaps. I call them chaps. Mm. Men. We went out for a drink and we all agreed that it was remarkable that any of us got anything because Mm. the mere prospect of having to suggest it seemed like you'd be stepping over a gendered line. Um, yeah. when I was at a Northern University, I was at Leeds, and it was starting with the, the miners' strike and going forward, and it was all very, very, very complicated. So yeah. whether you call it respect or just utter fear
1: yeah, Caution. Of- there is people, because that is what is happening at the moment... There are young men or there are older men worried about young men saying, well, how will they ever approach anybody? How will anyone ever meet each other? But actually, flirting and liking someone is very symbiotic. It comes from two directions. There isn't, it's not one person's job to catch somebody else. It's, you sense that they like you, you have a nice time. Like You can still meet somebody on a night out. That happens very quickly.
0: There was a brilliant line in a fresher's handbook in an American university on yeah. uh, sex and relationships, and it said don't hold out for consent consent is oh, yes. a very low bar hold out yeah. for enthusiasm
1: yeah <laughs> I thought that was so groundbreaking because actually uh in terms of like my cultural sexual education I think it's really important for women to be told that as well like um so oh, yeah. there's a there's a thing about virginity and how most girls are taught that if they're heterosexual and it's going to be penetrative sex that they losing their virginity will hurt and it was such a it, going alongside that statement, it came from America, of like, if you're really turned on, it doesn't hurt. You're having sex too soon. And being told to wait isn't moralistic. It's like, wait until you're really aroused, rather than wait until he definitely loves you or he's bought you enough dinners or anything like that. I did touch on this in my book. Sorry to bring it back to it, but... Well, something I'd never understood about sex work, and it's even when I was interviewing sex workers and I felt like I knew understood a lot more, the people who pay for someone to have sex with them. What I didn't understand was how is that sexy? Because the sexiest thing is someone fancying you. Then what I found out is there's a whole, there's a much grimmer, darker area where some people, they enjoy the power imbalance. They enjoy that it's transactional or there's this other whole area where actually people become very upset because they really believe that the person does like them and they do oh. believe it's real and they've got a connection. Bless. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I
0: listened to that you interviewed um, two sex workers for, yeah. for your podcast and mm. it was a really intriguing conversation because they were quite in your face saying, yeah. you know what, it can be positive. It yeah. can, there can be lots of reasons for it. And if someone sort of based their opinion of your ideas on only Mm -hmm. the introduction to sex power money, which is pretty hardcore and in-your-face and, if you're a bloke, can make you recoil because you're describing us as hardwired for rape or not. Yeah, yeah. And all that sort of stuff. But it's clear that you've been questing and on the journey. Up, This might sound brutal, but if you take all of that, the Mm. book, the podcasts, and some of the material on stage, you could start to think, hang on, is Sarah Pascoe... Questing, interested, or is she fucked up over her own sexual experiences?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting take. I'm trying to think who I met. It's someone, who's an interviewer, he's very tall. Jeremy Paxman. So Jeremy Paxman and I once spent three minutes together, three very brief minutes. It was a green room, we were doing separate shows, we were in okay. the same place, and it was like, hello, how are you, hello, how are you? And he said to me, and he's an interviewer, he said, what do you do? Three minutes, and he got up and went, you're obsessed with sex, goodbye. <laughs> That was his take on it. I don't think I'm struggling with my own sex life. I think I just find it fascinating. Right. Okay. It's 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 something that's so universal. Our experience of it can be very subjective and very different, but none of us can say our life isn't affected by attraction and love. And then on a larger scale, such a huge part, especially of kind of like white privileged woman feminism is porn and sex work. And what I realized was we needed to think about it a bit better and we needed to listen to people who actually do those things because you can have a whole conversation that doesn't involve anyone who actually does it. And so women on behalf of other women going, well, I don't think they should have to, and it's like, but you've made that decision by yourself and it doesn't mean that you don't mean really well, but you're not helping anybody.
0: How far have your, your views on pornography, sex work, how far have they shifted, do you think, over the past few years?
1: They've really changed, but it it isn't me having an opinion. It's more me now going, there's this whole spectrum of complicatedness. Listening to people all of the time is the important thing, but I actually don't have, like, I'm not an activist. It's just that I've really, really come a long way from just thinking that it's an evil, and especially, and this is definitely wrong, an evil uh, practised by the male body on the female body, which is definitely... I was really sexist for a long time, um... And, what and, changed
0: that, or was it just simply the reading? Because I know you've—I mean, you've done yeah. enormous amounts of reading. You can—you've mm. uh, got reports coming, studies coming out of your yeah. ears. It's, yeah. you know, but yeah, uh, I don't know if you're looking to your side because there is literally a pile of reports on in your front desk. of me. Oh, hello, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: It was an empathy exercise because I would spent so long thinking about how I felt if if I if I'm on a bus and a man I don't know approaches me and sits down and there's no one else around and he wants to talk to me. I felt so long. Thinking about my perspective, I'd never even thought about what is going through his head. What has culture told him? How is it supposed to be? And that for me was such a a huge switch. Of like, most people are inherently very, very good. Like those those men weren't trying to often. They weren't trying to upset me or make me scared. And they also sometimes didn't understand that like a woman laughing politely is a woman who wants you to go away. They think they're really funny. So there were these things that were really huge and they made me absolutely see the humanity behind other people. So and I guess actually one of my relationships was, was with a man who I think he talked a lot about shame and he had inherited shame because some of the things that turned him on. He felt made him a bad person, and i don 't know what they were by the way he never, He never specified, <laughs> but I do know that he felt he couldn 't communicate ever to a girlfriend i 'm into well, this, or when you 're not here, I like this and all of that kind of thing
0: by the way, have you, have you tried your Thai salad because it 's called i alcohol. did I'm, i I'm, did
1: it 's very nice. The temper is in little um, squares on the top with kind of a sweet chili sauce, and then it 's got lots of tortillas and lettuce it 's very nice oh,
0: jolly good I mean just to kind of mark up how complicated this is for some people. Mm. The shame is the turn on. Yes, um, I, I yeah. talked to to Grayson Perry, mm. um, renowned potter and transvestite. Incredible of this person, Paris, yeah, an incredible person. And, and when you get deep into a conversation with Grayson, you can find it wherever you find this podcast, because um, it's a really good good chat. Mm. He, he's quite clear that. that that embarrassment and shame is part of the turn-on for him. He yeah. doesn't want you to go, oh, you're a transvestite, how great. He wants yeah. you to look at him. He wants you yeah. to be startled by him and taken aback because mm. otherwise, he. what's the point of putting the fucking frock on?
1: Yeah, well, this is the thing about making any judgment about not just human sexuality but human behaviour is you can't talk on behalf of everyone. The same thing is true of people who are masochists or sadists, particularly masochists. You can't say... Oh, you're not allowed to have, like, oh, that's aggressive sex. That should be banned. But um, So like, in this country, we banned sitting on faces, for instance, which was something they banned in, in the pornography that's made in Britain because it was seen as something that could potentially be about, be about smothering and um, potentially dangerous. But there are people who play with those lines all of the time in a really safe, consensual way because that's their... You know the, the phrase they use? You might like this one because it's like the one with consent, but um, you're not allowed to yuck anyone else's yum. <laughs> so it's like that, that's their yarn. Like just because just cause it's my yuck, as long as no one's actually getting hurt or damaged, I'm not allowed to yuck it. I,
0: I, I would want to almost get into the technical issues of how you say a safe word with somebody sitting on your face, but that
1: is—it'd <laughs> be Morse code on their thigh with is your it fingers. It probably <laughs> It'd have would to be just tap tap, yeah.
0: But, you see, I actually personally find that stuff fascinating. Yeah, How me do too. You, most of us, when we get into sex, it's a thing that sort of happens and we don't stop to talk about it. Whereas yeah. people who are into more shall we say sophisticated. diverse sexual, yeah, sophisticated, diverse good word, yeah uh, practices seem to me to have long detailed conversations about it and Again, I'm fascinated by those that conversations that
1: was something that I was so I learned about because I was so interested about consent and what I realised is the BDSM community have a very very sophisticated um, set of rolling consent so the first thing when you go into that community is you're taught all of these things and about how it's constantly checking not only is your partner like okay are they up for it is this good for them and if it's ever not there are all of these points there's never this expectation that you've started or you've finished. There's never an expectation that you did it before, so you do it now. And I thought, they've just thought about it a lot more because of the type of sex that they're doing, whereas vanilla people are all just like, oh, it was a bit embarrassing.
0: Investigating all of this stuff, have you at any point thought to yourself, am I missing out? Have I missed out on certain things that I should investigate?
1: I identify it in really boring ways. I'm very heterosexual, Really heterosexual. Like, I appreciate the beauty of a woman. I've never, no, and, and it's, you talk to other people and you realize, oh, they are more fluid or more open, or even the idea of something, if not in practice. And the other thing is, I'm very vanilla. The stuff I like, I really like it, but in, in the world of sex, it's very basic stuff. It's like I got to page one and went, like, this is brilliant. i finished the book. <laughs> you,
0: you, did, you did one bit of material where you said, there are three things I like being done to oh, me, and yes, I like yeah. being done really <laughs> yeah. well.
1: Yeah, but it's true. It's true. So actually, you know, they have places where people dress up and they do things to each other. That, that stuff makes me feel so unsexy, and I don't need it. So I think, and it would be the opposite I guess if you had a secret longing and felt like, oh, you couldn't. But no, I'm not, I don't, I'm not there. I'm really vanilla and boring.
0: (laughs) (sighs) just a brief break from all the out-to-lunching chat to pip my wares, if you'll allow me the time, because now your favourite podcast comes with real physical stuff too. Stuff we've designed to make your kitchen life both more comfortable and more glamorous, your friends more envious... Or, of course, if you're a generous soul, you can give them away as Christmas gifts too. It's not one, but three bits of tasty merch that are here with me in my own kitchen. Firstly, this deliciously designed travel cup. Ah, that's fantastic for all your slurping needs on the move or at your desk. Now, I've lost count of the number of shirts I've stained in the kitchen, but it's a thing of the past since I started wearing this... That's the sound of the out-to-lunch apron in weighty, riveted denim. And in times like these, we all need to be good to ourselves. So why not invest in the light and soft out-to-lunch tea towel? Oh, yes, this is me stroking it. To see the range, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's lunch, outtolunch, all one word, .backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. But now, let's go back to the chat. Uh, there is something I do have to discuss with you. So, obviously, your your, um, your dad, Derek Pascoe, yeah. um, had a a big career. Uh, was it Flintlock? Flintlock, um, yeah, when he was very yeah.
1: young. So, he was, yeah, 17. And then, when
0: he, and then he segued into jazz. Yes. Uh, moved to Australia. And during one of your gigs, you did say the worst musical style is jazz. It's yep. oral excrement. Um <laughs> Um, I don't know if you know, but I'm um, yeah. have a. I'm a jazz pianist and have a jazz quartet. I anyway, mean. off you go, off you okay.
1: go. OK, well, how do your kids feel about it, first of all? Because David O'Doherty has a jazz dad as well. And we have a term like jazz dads. Your dad is in another room playing jazz and the door's shut so you don't interrupt him. Yeah. <laughs> my dad My dad still plays for eight hours a day. When we used to go and stay with him, he had, um, not a room, a um, a, co- a coat cupboard that he'd put underlay on the inside of. So he could. He, there's only space for him and his saxophone and he stands there and just the sound of it so unfortunately I'll never love jazz because there's something about like that sound of him practicing but now I just think it sounds like bees when I have to see him and his friends doing the jazz improvisation
0: and and one other thing before I before we wrap up and I leave you with dessert so the the paperback of uh, sex power money is coming out Um, are you planning others do you have thoughts of other books?
1: Yes, I've got a choice now because I've had so much time at home. I've started writing a novel because I would I would love to write novels eventually, um, and I because I love reading and I love reading fiction so much. But I've also got another idea for a non fiction book. So it's about which one of those I pitch or do. So at the moment, I'm kind of writing a little bit on both. Yeah, but I definitely want to carry on writing books.
0: Well, marvellous. Um, good luck with that. You've um, so I'm leaving you Thank with you. Uh, by Chloe's sticky toffee pudding with whipped yeah. coconut cream. You had the blood orange bitters with cardamom, which sounded very nice. Oh, it was exotic.
1: gorgeous. I loved that. I, I love cardamom. I had a punchy
0: yuzu something. And I really like my salad. So.
1: Yeah, it's a good salad. That's the best. I think that's the best thing on the menu at Chloe. Yeah. Well. I think so.
0: Thank you for thank being you so to stay much for in lunch. for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's wasn't been, it lovely? It wasn't it just. What a delight Sarah was. Her book, Sex Power Money, is out in paperback now. I can heartily recommend it. By Chloe, provided our vegan lunches they deliver across London and have branches in the United States and Canada as well. And if you want more, do feast yourselves on previous episodes. If you particularly like comedy, we have the likes of Reginald D. Hunter, Tim Minchin, Deborah Francis White and Joe Brand on offer. And do share the love. Let everyone know all about us. Comment, give us a five-star review. It does help us to make more. Out to lunch is a something else? And Jay, Rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay Rayner, and robert rickenberg the mix engineer was josh gibbs jemima rathbone was assistant producer and editor the producer is selena rehm and the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman next time is w1a and last tango in halifax actor Nina Sasonia, did the script turn up? Did you get a call from the producer saying, Nina, darling, you've been fabulous. Just a little note about what's <laughs> going to happen in the next series. Or or was it the blue pages turned up? uncanny.
1: Was it you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, it was me, really, yeah.